Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's podcast of Twins Talk Theater. Today, we are talking to Meredith Pat. I met Meredith working at East West Players. She's the audience service manager, and she's been here since 2014. Yes. And before that, she was at the Kurt Douglas Theater for four years as the performance manager. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So one of the things we always like to start with, because it's always interesting, is how did you get into theater? Were you an actor? Were you just fell into it on accident? Such a broad question. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And how far back do you really want to go? Some people, like Cindy and I didn't start theater until we were in high school. Some people, one person we talked to, they were two years old or three years old and saw a dance recital and knew they wanted to be in theater. So I guess as far back as you want to go. Um, Well, as a child, I was always in dance classes and knew there was some sort of performance streak in me. Um, we didn't do in elementary school a lot of plays, but whatever we did, I was like, me, 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 choose me, 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 me. Um, and then when I got, by the time I got to high school, um, my school district that I went to didn't have a lot of money. So we didn't have a lot of theater program programming at all. We had like two drama classes, like intro to drama one and intro to drama two. And we did like a play that was a few characters and no set pieces like every year. There was really nothing at that level. Um, So I knew I was interested in theater, um, but I didn't do much of it in high school. I had to search out other means of learning about it, being completely jealous of kids who went to you know, these giant theater programs and their public high schools. schools. Exactly, exactly. I did end up auditioning for the performing arts school in Chicago and was going to go, but my dad talked me out of it at the last minute because I knew at that point I wanted to go to Northwestern for theater. And he was like, are you going to have the academics to get in if you are in a conservatory like performance theater program in high school. Um, so I ended up not doing that. Um, but the, the pivotal moment that really made me go, oh my gosh, I want to go to Northwestern and oh my gosh, I want to do theater for the rest of my life was seeing the first national tour of Les Mis when I was... Oh, yeah. great show. Yeah, it was mind-blowing. Um, my parents knew that I was interested in all this. They did their best to buy tickets, um, to go see shows in Chicago. And, but that one I was sitting in, sitting watching Les Mis going, that is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to affect people in their seats in the theater the way I am being affected right now. And I looked in the program and saw that multiple people in that cast went to Northwestern University. I had no idea about anything in training or colleges or anything. I completely forgot my father's and alma alma mater is Northwestern. (laughs) And I just was like, that's where I'm going. That's where I'm going. 
And I had set my sights on it. And so I did their summer program uh, in between junior and senior year of high school. Uh, um, It's called the Cherub Program. Met a lot of professors there at Northwestern. Had other friends who had already gone to Northwestern. So it was like really the first serious studying of theater wasn't until college, really. Wow. Yeah. And I always say that I went into th- into college thinking I was an actor, but came out knowing I was a director. <laughs> so many people start being like, I'm going to be an actor. And we don't talk to many actors because then they all are like, oh, I can get jobs backstage. Or, oh, this backstage <laughs> stuff is pretty fun. Exactly. Very nice. So did you, um, was it, I don't know much about Northwestern. Sydney and I went to small private schools. And so our degree was just theater did they have emphasis on different things or did you get a general overall theater degree when i was there the program was a general overall theater degree it was not audition based it was not conservatory it's still not conservatory it um lives in what was then called the school of speech which is now called the community school of communications it's also where their uh radio television film uh major is and so it's a Smaller school within the larger university. Mm -hmm. And you could be a designer. You could be an actor. You could be a director. um, But your degree would not say that. It would just be theater. And there were requirements in all of the disciplines that you had to have, including, you know, history and theory, um, voice, movement, acting, design, run crews, pretty much everything. Um, and then once you hit those minimums, you for the degree, you didn't have to continue on that track. But the vast majority um, of students were actor, were on the acting path. And so yeah. they stayed with the acting program for all the three years uh, that the acting program uh, consists of, along with doing all of the um, required courses in all the different... Uh, aspects of theater whereas if you're a designer you would do your required like three acting classes and yeah. then you would stop and then you that's would continue I did. My yeah one acting class and i was like that's it i'm done i did this one thing <laughs> right right and so i felt that that actually was a better fit for me because even in hindsight you know looking back you've i felt like i came out of that program a well well-rounded and well-versed in mm-hmm. theater um instead of having just one pathway um, into the craft and art. You have have to be, and as a director, you have to be knowledgeable and be able to have the conversations with all the different, you know, designers and people that are you are collaborating with. So absolutely, yeah. I felt like that was a really good foundation for myself. Yeah, that's one thing we've talked about a number of times. Because as a technical director, um, I have to learn everything. And Cindy, as a stage manager, has to learn everything. Uh, and some people get so stuck in one area that they don't know the language of the other areas. And mm-hmm. so they can't talk to other people. Um, you know, sound people can't always talk lighting because it's a different language on what they're talking about. So, yeah, I think the liberal arts schools are good because you get rounded. You have to, whether you like it or not, take the acting class, take the design class. So, yeah, I think that's cool. Did you go to a grad school after that or is that your... your... No, that's been the eternal question of (laughs) my adult life. Uh, There were many times I flirted with it, looked into programs, but then as I would take a different 
turn in my career, I'd be like, oh, well, then maybe I wouldn't study this. Maybe I would study that. And maybe I would do this. And maybe I would do that. And I've never been able to settle. So I haven't, (laughs) I have not gone back to school, which has been surprising to me. But (laughs) you never know. There's always time. Yeah. (laughs) Cindy chose grad school right after school. But I was like, I am done with school. (laughs) I don't want to sit in class anymore. But it was just because I knew once I got in the real world that I wasn't going to want to go back. And we just talked to a friend of mine um, a few podcasts ago, Danielle, who went out into the real world for six years and then went back to school. And even though she doesn't regret it, she had she struggled quite a bit, you know, because after like working professionally for six years and then you have to go back to school, she's just kind of like, what am I doing here? Absolutely. And and you forget about the rigors of academia. You forget about all that stuff. And you're like. Why am I wasting my time writing these papers? But, but, yeah, exactly. at, but at this end, and so, yeah, I would say if there's anybody listening who's like, should I wait and go to grad school or should I go right away? I'd say go as soon as possible if you think that's what you want to do, because it just gets harder to, to leave your professional life and, and mm-hmm. go back, then take the time to do the studying, take that time out um, to get that degree. Yeah, because the real world, you don't have to write a paper when you go home. Right. There's not math questions to do or a report to uh, do no, a presentation on. managers have to write papers every freaking day after we go home. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's true. And I do a lot of math work, but uh, I get paid for it. I have not paid someone else to have me do homework. <laughs> okay, good. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, so Northwestern, I'm terrible at uh, places, but it's not in California. So <laughs> No, it's outside of Chicago. And so I how grew- did you make it? out here to California? Um, I, after school, I worked in Chicago at an office job and did theater stuff. And at the time in the mid to late nineties, the theater scene in Chicago seemed to be like, it was a lot of directors in search of actors. Not to say that there weren't a lot of actors in Chicago. There's a lot of amazing actors in Chicago, but the joke was, what do you call four recent Northwestern grads at a coffee shop? A new theater company. Um, so <laughs> I don't know why there's so many there. <laughs> yeah. And there's other great, you know, schools uh, for theater in, in Chicago as well. So it seemed like it was going to take me a long time to get to where I wanted to in Chicago. And I grew up outside of Chicago. I went to Northwestern outside of Chicago. I was living in Chicago. And I just wanted a break. I had a friend who just decided she was moving to L.A. And on a whim, I just said, start looking for two bedrooms. And within 30 days, I moved to L.A. Wow. Um, It was just for a total break and actually gave up theater for a while and worked in film, in independent film for for a while. That's where the money's more in film. Well, the money is. But then it's, it's, it's it's a different kind of grind. You know, in theater, you go from gig to gig, you know, um, in, in, uh, as an artist or designer or stage manager. Um, and that's very much the life of working in production in, in, um, in film as well. Mm-hmm. However, you're like all constantly trying to set up your next gig while you're working 12 hour days. Yeah. And when you're in the production department on a film, you're there two hours before everybody else. And you're there two hours after everybody else. And so it was a grind that I just didn't want to keep up. And then of course, theater people found me and then asked me to stage manage some stuff. And then I ended up doing that and then never looked back. (laughs) 
Yeah, they always have a way of dragging you back in. I know. I felt like I was in uh, The Godfather. (laughs) I thought I was out, and they pulled me back in. I'm terrible at impressions, so you can edit that out if you want. (laughs) Uh, Did you like stage management, or just they needed a stage manager, you knew how to do it, so you... Um, One of my courses in... uh, theater or in uh, college was stage management and I was stage managing um because I felt like because there was no specific directing track in at Northwestern for the undergrad at that time and so I found myself stage managing I started like ASMing even my freshman year um even on main stage shows it was kind of like the thing I did on the side um <laughs> to my studies but I felt like as as a stage manager you're in the room you're working closely with the director and mm-hmm. I looked at it as like that was kind of my director training and then I was also building my skills as a stage manager so I had this whole skill set that I could put into play right after um, school. So, and that's actually what I was doing more of in Chicago was stage managing um, for a company that wasn't, isn't around anymore, but was a bunch of Northwestern grads. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, it, it, then I, that's what people knew that I could do that. And so out here, people just kept asking me to do it. And then I got into the 99 seat, Uh, theater world worked a lot um, both as an assistant director and as a stage manager and then working my way up as you know as a director of smaller things one acts full-length plays in the small theater world Um, worked a lot with uh, theater of note um, for a small stretch of time and then a lot with sacred fools Um, sacred fools really was the theater company that um, I cut my teeth on uh, here in LA and uh, had some uh, internship programs, directing internship experiences at Center Theater Group. um, And which just takes me into your next question of like, well, how the heck did you get into audience (laughs) services managing um, from this path? And I was... um, doing uh, a workshop with the city company out here uh, and the person who ran the program worked at center theater group and we were having many drinks after the program and <laughs> I you do yeah. as you do and I said well it's hey networking it's networking and marketing <laughs> that's what it's called I write those things off <laughs> exactly exactly i was networking there just happened to be many drinks um and i said you know i want a job at center theater group and he very wisely asked me do you want an artistic experience or do you want a job and what came out of my mouth was i want a job i want steady income exactly (laughs) exactly i would like to make a living in this and i had no idea really what that meant um and but i knew he could tell me what that meant and the next thing i knew i was being offered the position of performance manager at the new Kirk Douglas Theater for their dedication weekend, which meant the theater was 
being constructed and being opened. It's the third space that Center Theater Group runs, and uh, it's in Culver City. And it's an old movie theater, so it had been... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, retrofitted. It's got a whole... The building has a really long history um, in the film as a, a movie theater. And then it was damaged in an earthquake, and it sat empty for a long time. And as part of the revitalization of downtown Culver City, Center Theater Group moved in to rehab it and open it as a live performance space. Um, and this was all under the leadership of Gordon Davidson. His dream uh, was for a smaller theater for playwrights uh, to have a production of their show and learn and shape their show in production instead of a traditional um, development model. And then the, the plays, this was supposed to be a launching pad for new work. Um, that was his dream for it. As, as I understand it, of course, somebody else may have a much deeper understanding <laughs> of that than I do. Um, but that's what I had always, uh, understood. And that first season was magical, but I got the, the ongoing job after having worked just the dedication weekend, which was a whole weekend of tours of the theater to the public ceremonies, um, which we had to do two nights in a row because the theater is only 317 seats. <laughs> and so you had the, there were more than 317 donors and important people that needed to be at the opening night ceremonies. <laughs> so we had to do them to do it two nights in a row. Like an opening weekend ceremony. That's exactly. <laughs> Imagine doing opening night two nights in a row. Yeah, it's a lot of work for opening. Yeah. And so I had to put together an usher staff. I had to, figure out how to work with it. I didn't know anybody at Center Theater Group. Uh, it really was um, an interesting time. There was a, the crew kind of already knew each other and had to like figure out my way into this already tightly knit family uh, of people who had been working together and been building this theater. And I really liked it. I can organize stuff and <laughs> and hire people and put together schedules and all the stage management stuff led to that kind of organization of a of a department and then um they kept me on for that season so I was the inaugural performance manager and what performance manager means is it's you couldn't use the title house manager because that's a union title um oh I didn't know that well, because there's, yeah, um, Center Theater Group, their other two spaces, the Amundsen and the Taper, have union stage managers. I believe the union is at PAM, and I always forget what the letters stand for. But um, there was a, without getting too much into the technical boring stuff, there was a, a uh, dispute as to whether or not the Kirk Douglas Theater itself would become a union house and hire with, and then, you know, so IATSE made the first claim on it and it went into arbitration for a long time and ultimately was decided it would not go union, which therefore meant that all the other unions didn't really have a claim to it either. Because IATSE I mean, didn't get in. Right. 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 
Um, but I know at Pam was would have been one of those other unions that would have come in and had IATSE come in. Um, and so my guess is they just didn't call me a house manager because that's what they call the people that are hired through the union at their other spaces. And they titled it performance manager. And I know the title has changed, I think, two or three other times since I've been there. Um, and plus I did a lot more than house management because I did all of the administrative work of running a department, um, all of the scheduling, all of the training, all of the payroll, um, all of the policies and communications. Um, and I also acted as the manager on site, the center theater group manager on site. This was all a real different experience for center theater group because their other two spaces uh, live in a county building. The music center is a county-run uh, set set of buildings, and so Center Theater Group is not responsible for the maintenance or the, um, you know, janitorial, the security, the, right, the that. HVAC systems, security, yeah. <laughs> like all of that. It's all hired through the county. Even their ushers are hired through the county. Oh, I didn't. Very interesting. Yeah. Then their ushers go through all four um, uh, venues as well. They are not, you end up not just an usher at the Amundsen, you end up as an usher one night, you could be at the Amundsen, the other night you could be at the Taper, you could be at the Dorothy Chandler, you could be, you know, at least it was at that time, I believe. Um, so uh, this was the first time that Center Theater Group had to basically own their space that they were in and all of the operations within that space, not just the technical elements uh, of producing the shows. And so um, I a did learning curve for them and for you to like, kind of figure out what that meant. Absolutely. Um, there was, they have a very close relationship with the city of Culver city, which owns the Kirk Douglas theater, but is rented to two, Center Theater Group for one of those minuscule sums per year and with the understanding that Center Theater Group runs that building. Um, but yeah, there was a time where we didn't have 911 hooked up um, in the space. <laughs> there was, I mean, it's not just a learning curve of like learning all of those operation things, but it's also being in a building where not every system is even built yet. Um, I don't think I had a desk that was a desk and not a folding table and a folding chair until like halfway through the first season. Because um, <laughs> who's going to get that? And who's going to put it together? And what's the layout? And how do you get the phone and computer hooked up to it? Exactly. We had to we had to figure it all out ourselves. And um, we had great leadership. Um, you know, the management department at Center Theater Group is top notch. They're all great folks. Um, so I had a lot of great people to work with and a lot of great people to learn from. Um, and everybody knew this was kind of a, a new adventure that we were all on. Um, so it was, yeah, it was learning curves all over the place. Um, and then I also did, um, so it was running the, building the department, running the department. I also took on... Um, the managing of concessions as well. The first season we tried to um, contract that out, but it's a smaller house. So a contractor, you didn't make enough money to justify yeah. their expenses and, and everything. We went through a couple of different um, concessionaires 
And ultimately I was able, we were able to come to the decision that it, maybe it's better if we do this in house and we got a liquor license and I went through the ABC training and that takes a while. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not too bad. It's like a day of, of, of stuff to get your certificate and, and then, but you have to learn all, luckily we didn't have a kitchen, so I didn't have to learn all the, you know, food handling and yeah. things like that. But um, then I had to learn how to set up, you know, um, accounts with vendors and, you know, do all of the orderings, do all the, P- you know, we had a PO program and we, it just, I learned so much about administration and, and I was there for, <laughs> and, and how everything works. And it was a great education in the four years that I was there. Yeah. That actually sounds really, really awesome as you keep talking about it. I was like, dude, I would love to do something like that. As a stage manager, it all just kind of seems like taking the skills that you know as a stage manager and just like applying them to something else. But I was like, that sounds really interesting. I should look into this. <laughs> I stage managing. Although, yeah, I, although I will say that one, you always joke like, oh, the stage manager, you know, the, the least uh, glorious job in, in theater. Oh no, there's those of us in audience services. That is much less glorious. I couldn't do that just because the fact that you have to deal with patrons. Like, I deal with crew, and I'm okay with that, but I don't even like dealing with many of the actors, which Twin deals with, and then there's the patrons. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole nother level. But yeah, Cindy, you're right. It was It was exactly that. It was taking everything I knew as a stage manager and being able to apply it just in a completely different way. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was definitely. And that it, it, at that point, now I'm off the beaten path of what I thought my journey would be in theater. And then it becomes a series of what decisions do, did I make that landed me here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, while you were there doing that, did you do directing on small gigs on the outside or it was hard and it was a big push pull. Um, and part of the reason why I chose not to stay uh, in that position after four years, um, thinking that I would well, go back to school, as we talked about before, <laughs> that I would do, you know, something else uh, as a day job um, and and go back to focusing on the artistic side. Um, but unfortunately, when I made this decision, it was late uh, 2008 and we know that's when the market crashed yeah. and the economy contracted and it was a really you know probably not the best time in the world for me to make that kind of decision <laughs> to walk away from uh such a, a a really great institution and a um secure and steady job um but i did go i went back to freelancing stage managing. I did have some directing, um, experiences in there. Um, I had the pleasure and honor to work with Nancy Keystone as one of her assistants when she was premiering her show, uh, Apollo at the Kirk Douglas theater and then had, uh, another wonderful opportunity to help her when she was premiering it with a third part added to it. Um, up in Portland at Portland Center Stage. Um, so I wouldn't have been able to do that if I had a full-time job. Um, her husband, Michael Schlitt, uh, is a 
uh, a performer and writer as well. And he had a new one man show that he needed a stage manager for. So for a an ongoing series of workshops and um, small production runs of his show, including a, uh, a run at the New York fringe festival um, for a month. Um, I was, I was his stage manager for, for that project. Wouldn't have been able to do that had I a full-time job. Yeah. So I'd be jump around to different cities and states and long hours and nights and weekends. Exactly. Exactly. And then, um, I ended up having a kid, <laughs> which <laughs> threw in a whole other like set of like, oh, gee, maybe, maybe a paycheck on a steady basis would be nice. <laughs> yeah, kids do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's where, how I ended up at the LA, um, uh, theater center, uh, working with the Latino theater company who runs that space. Um, it's a five space performance space uh building i don't think i've ever seen anything there i just hear about them it's a really fabulous building there's a lot of really great work that goes on there and there's uh, a really long history um of the experimental theater that went on in that building um working there People would come through and ask me, you know, how long have you been here? Have you known, you know, were you here when? Were you here when? And I was like, no, I've only been here like a year or two years. And they're like talking about like the experimental crazy show they saw in 1987, you know, like. So it had, yeah, yeah, it had a really um, uh, long and interesting history uh, in the Los Angeles performing arts scene. And so that was, I was there for a while and I was part-time there. So then I ended up picking up a bunch of other part-time jobs throughout. Um, Another one being working with uh, the Shakespeare Center of Los Angeles. And they would, um, that's kind of how I got into the ticketing side of things. um, Because everything else had been house management or patron services. And this, I got into ticketing by uh, working with them. They uh, worked... Uh, with the uh, Veterans Association, and they would mount a show every summer at the VA campus in West LA. And they would erect a uh, grandstand and stage in a garden. And they hired the veterans in all of the veterans work assistance programs to build that stage to um, some of them uh, were hired on and in, in the in crew positions, um, and they had a director come from uh, London uh, to direct the shows. Uh, it was a different Shakespeare production each year, and I did their entire front of house program, which was parking box office and front of house so did you have to worry about how the seats were set up and where the bathrooms and all were abs- they built it in the park absolutely um i think some of those things are fixed but you know like we had to rent porta potty you know like the the big trailers, the trailers yeah. of of nicer uh yeah, bathrooms. bathrooms i think is one that we've used before at long beach opera <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah those those kinds of nicer ones um and uh we'd you know, however we set up the the stands, the seats, they were all benches um, and it was a thrust stage. So you had three sides of of the stage were, um, you know, 
wrapped around with with the audience and however you set it up and you decided what the numbers of the seat location how many people you could fit into a bench and then that's their ticket of where they're supposed to go you know they're supposed to be on this side or this side or this and you had to balance your inventory of like because they were all different price levels if you're sitting in the front then that's a price level and it was ultimately general admission in your level so we had to then train all the ushers to look for the different colored tickets for which section they're supposed so to be then how in. did you label the seats because i know cindy and i both worked uh, at long beach opera and we had to do that a number of times and there was always the discussion of is it color coordinated is it uh, a letter is it a different seat cushion is a different color but we never did benches like did you have to put stickies on every bench like four per bench so people knew exactly where in the bench they were seated or? well yeah the the seats themselves weren't assigned seating but they were assigned to their section oh, so okay. you if you bought the side tickets in the first couple of rows that's one color ticket and then the back benches on the sides were another color ticket um the front you know center uh benches you know were another color ticket so you would have we'd end up training so you had to guesstimate how many people could actually fit in those and adjust your inventory because again it's not assigned seats it's assigned sections but you can't have like two benches and sell 50 tickets yeah. you know you have you have to like be like how many people can reasonably fit in this section plus if you come with a friend you don't want to sit on opposite benches so not all the benches were probably seating exactly the same number of people right so you'd end up some houses were lopsided and it's just where people wanted to go um so we would have different colored tickets I don't know if we did that all of the years that I was there, but I know that we did that one year and it was easier because it was like yellow tickets, you go here, blue tickets, you go here, pink tickets, you go here. And then the ushers in those sections looked for the color ticket and made sure, you know, like, oh, your ticket, you need to be on this side. Oh, no, you're in the wrong place. Go to where the, you have a yellow ticket, go over there. Wow. Yeah. And so because then it was general seating, we would have people lined up to like get in there the moment we opened yeah, the so theater. Yeah, be the front of your color section. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it was nice. People could come and picnic and uh, in the in one part of the garden before uh, the show and then see the show. And we hired the veterans um, all as ushers and parking attendants. Um, and then I had I had hired box office staff, so I ran all of that. And then it's a I, lot of work. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I hired a a house manager who could focus on being the house manager. Yeah. And I I would use one of the parking attendants as kind of like my main guy to run the parking lot that night, and then I was always in the box office. Um. So. I didn't have to be in three places at the same time, but it felt like it. <laughs> but sometimes. you were there to answer all the problems and questions that happened in all three spaces. Exactly. Lots of walkie talkies. That's <laughs> what it came down to. Um, and so like when you put all of that together, that's basically all the, all of what you do with patron services. Then it's just about learning more about ticketing programs. And, you know, I ended up, at the, after having the ticketing experience there, 
um, ended up adding box office manager for a season while I was at the LATC because we had a turnover in the box office department. And I was like, well, I know I can do that now. Yeah, I've been doing it. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll, I've, I've learned how to build shows. I've learned how to do all of that. Okay. I can do that. And that the, the, Theaters at the LATC are general admission. So it wasn't until I came to East West Players that I had to learn how to build assigned seats um, and how to ticket and and also how to learn how to do subscriptions and all of that. Yeah. So that, that, gee, I feel like I just talked for like 800 hours (laughs) on like what I did (laughs) in life. (laughs) But yeah, it's interesting. We've never talked to anyone in, uh, house management or ticket sales or anything like that have we no no, no i don't think so people all of our people have been backstage i think yeah and so all we know about it is when we get stuck doing it as part of the production team at long beach opera and then we were like wait this has nothing to do with set why am i tying chairs together and putting labels on them <laughs> um but yeah in general we don't deal with any of that so it's interesting to know all the stuff that goes on not backstage or on stage making a show <laughs> how you get the butts in their seats exactly somebody's got to pay for everybody a backstage and on stage <laughs> it's called ticket sales yep so then um how did you get to east west players from working part-time at a couple different places um you know east west players when when the job was up uh was like another part-time job they uh were going through some reorganization and i think uh, wanted to make sure they had the right person before they went into a, another full-time uh, position. Um, and so I was like, I've seen shows at East West Players. I know people who have worked at East West Players. Why not go on an interview and see what happens? <laughs> and everybody was uh, really awesome and ended up getting uh, getting the job and pretty shortly after um was asked if i wanted to come on full time nice and now it's been i will have my 4 year anniversary of starting to work for east west players in a couple of weeks nice i'm sorry 5 year 5, five year, year anniversary man i just hit 3 <laughs> months <laughs> <laughs> so obviously they like you and you like it and so you've been here a while. So have you done any directing work while here? Because obviously it's a full-time job and with a kid or... Yeah, it's... Uh, again, the artistic seems to have fallen by the wayside. However, um, last season was uh, very happy to serve um, the production of As We Babylon as their dramaturg, um, which is something that I have been becoming more and more interested in um, finding myself moving a lot farther away from the real directing um, and looking at how dramaturgs can serve playwrights uh, as well as directors, but um, looking at like new work has always been a interest and passion of mine. We can't, don't have plays without our playwrights mm-hmm. <laughs> and we uh, it all starts with, with the playwright with, with the play. So how do how how does our american theater support playwrights how do plays get made what do dramaturgs do i've just been interested in in uh 
in that conversation, uh, as well as, you know, have being someone who works for a culturally specific theater company, is there crossover between uh, what a dramaturg can do as well as what, what a dramaturg can do for equity, inclusion, and diversity? I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> if there is an answer to that if question. If there is an answer to that question, it's just an it's an interesting question in my mind. And so I was um, very happy that Snehal, uh, the art- producing artistic director here at East West Players, was able to give me the opportunity to get my feet wet um, in working mostly with the playwright. Because dramaturgs can function, function in a lot of ways. They can work mm-hmm. specifically with a playwright during development they can be literary managers for big institutions uh and run big develop you know play development programs they can be a production dramaturg who works with the director uh as well as uh the playwright in new work um they can be used as research uh assistants um for historical accuracy uh any topical accuracy in shows and so this was mostly uh working with the playwright through the uh rehearsal uh process um a little bit of overlap with the director mostly about communication and how to uh, navigate the changes that either the director or the playwright uh deemed necessary uh or uh wanted to happen um and it was a a really great, really great experience to, to get my feet wet in that area. So not so much, but other than that, not, not a whole lot artistic going on in these five years. Yeah. Kind of full-time jobs, not in the arts world, well, in the arts world, but yeah, not directly the art job. Artistically. Yeah, exactly. It all comes back to that original question. Do you want an artistic experience (laughs) or do you want a job? I find that haunts me all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Always, yeah. Uh, One thing you said in the doing the dramaturg stuff is the inclusivity. And East West Players is big in that because it's the longest running what how is it said now because it was the longest running asian american but now is it the theater it's the longest running theater of color yeah yeah consecutively running theater of color in the united states and Uh, it's the largest producer of asian american work nice i don't think i knew that one an employer and and barring you know the king and i and and miss saigon tours um (laughs) (laughs) the largest employer uh of asian american artists in theater which is interesting because uh, both you and I are not Asian American or of a color. We are, I mean, we're white, we're not of a color, mm-hmm. uh, and we both work here. How do you, um, how do you see, I don't know if I'm saying this right, the inclusivity, because East West Players doesn't just do people of color. They're also very conscious of uh, gender, sex, um, how people see themselves and all that, and I know we we've had a number of meetings at East West players about inclusivity and how do we include as many people as possible without offending anyone. And Cindy came up with a lot of questions because uh, she's worked in a couple shows recently where they've had somebody transitioning from male to female or vice versa. And I haven't worked with many people like that, but you have done your 
more connected, I feel, in the internet world of all of that <laughs> stuff. <laughs> so how do you, I don't know, Twin, do you want to ask an actual question? Because I'm kind of not coming up with a question. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm kind of babbling. My, my, I had a, a number of questions. One of my big questions is, how do you have any recommendations of words or of phrases that people can use these days that is more inclusive a big one in stage management world right now is instead of using ladies and gentlemen all the time to get the attention of a room or to greet an audience or to greet on stage you know what can we use um and as stage managers we want something that's more than one or two syllables because if you only say one or two syllables you're not going to get any you know the room's attention so ladies and gentlemen is a long enough phrase to use but we don't want to use that anymore so do you have anything that's similar from like a, a patron services standpoint that you have to, that you guys are adjusting to in these times? Sure. I'm Well, first off, I, as uh, Stacy pointed out, I, well, and I am not a person of color and I am also uh, a cis hetero person. So I don't check a lot of the boxes uh, in terms, you know, of these of of these issues. And I so I just want to say right off the bat, I am no expert in (laughs) in this uh, uh, area. Um, Before I answer your question, I'll just talk briefly about like my vision, I think, because this was kind of I think what you were getting at a little bit, Stacey, in terms of like allyship. Yeah, that's what I look at it as. Um, like, what do? How do I fit in here? How do I view diversity, inclusion, and equity? Um, in which I uh, would also encourage us to include justice in in that uh, in that grouping of words. Um, and but for me, it's an ever evolving process. Uh, I think that's true of anyone. There's no, like, with allyship, there's no, like, oh, I've got the right phrase, and so I've crossed the goal line, I'm in the end zone, spiked the football, and I'm done. You know, it's always evolving. Um, And it's a, for me, it's a personal journey. It's always, like, looking at, oh, gosh, did I just have a bias pop up in my head? And I need to deconstruct that myself. Um, how do I then take that, you know, journey of, of trying to constantly um, be a better ally? How do I put that into action is mm-hmm. uh, more of what you're talking about, how of looking at like if we're speaking about specifically um, gender inclusivity it's about ungendering my own language as well. So yeah. I've been doing a lot of work yeah. myself. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, doing work, a lot of work myself of trying to ungender my own language. And so I've been using folks instead of um, ladies and gentlemen for a long time. Uh, well, I mean, not a long time, but I mean, you know, it's since I've become aware, which now I can't even remember when that is, but <laughs> I, I haven't, been con- I've been consciously trying to um, not use gendered language when addressing a group of people. And so folks comes naturally to me. Um, same thing when 
I'm like writing emails or whatever. I just don't use ladies and gentlemen. I don't use those because I'm trying myself to use folks or something else that's more inclusive. Um, so for, I, I think you're right. I think there's a, there is a difference between, um, the customer service side of it and the room where you have to corral a lot of people <laughs> as a stage manager, because you're right, you have to get everybody's attention. Um, Whereas, you know, in customer service, it's more of a transactional based. So what I found is, uh, you know, in the room, it's instead of ladies and gentlemen, hey, theater makers, um, singers, uh, friends, um, how, how, whatever. Quite a bit or yeah, friends, performers. Mm hmm. Inside. can't use musicians. What am I supposed to use? Orchestra members. <laughs> um, yeah. It's tricky because it's so many years of training and it's kind of ingrained in you. And when you're focused on something else, you know, you just automatically start saying words. And like, as they're coming out of your mouth, you're like, no, 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 that's not what I meant to say. <laughs> yeah. I noticed like the other day I said, bye guys, see you later. And I was talking to male and female, but I think that's also... Uh, like a California thing, we say guys and dudes. Dude, as, dude is everything. Is everything. In California. Everything. We even call my dog dude, and he's not human. He's a dog. My chair is a dude. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> but technically, dude is a masculine thing. So yeah, there's been there's you know I've read discussions about you know um about dude in particular yeah. and and by extension guys being all inclusive yeah um and it's just it's kind of what i was talking about like if you want to uh use something else it just i find that it starts in my personal everyday actions uh, my everyday words um instead of thinking of it as a formalized sort of thing um and so Guys and dude are the ones that I can't, I'm having the hardest time uh, unlearning because yeah, it is ingrained. And I, for, for, I don't know why, but ever since I was young, everything has been male. Like my car is a male. My stuffed animals were male. And I don't know if it was conscious or not, but they just were. And I, a lot of people, a lot of guys name their cars like female names. So to me, I, I'm like, when I refer to my animals my stuffed animals or whatever i'm like he but it's a stuffed animal it doesn't have a gender or sex so yeah i I don't know because it's not like we're in europe or in a different country where the pronouns are attached to everything like l or law yeah try to ungender all of that yeah that would be (laughs) that would be even more confusing but like i just i i don't know why everything's a dude everything's a guy and yeah well if you don't know what else to say yeah i like for me like i was saying folks is the is the easiest thing for me so i find whenever i'm trying to address a group group of people um folks hi folks (laughs) it seems to be uh, pretty inclusive some some stuff that we or that I started doing, and it's really been all season or this whole past year for me, because um, more than most of the shows that I've worked on, this has been 
uh, it's something that's come up. And Portland Opera, it was a really big thing for us. Portland Opera and Teatro Nuovo and Opera Philadelphia were all places that I worked this uh, past year where these things came up and discussions were happening. And it was really great because it was a constant reminder. But anyway, some things that we started to transition is in our paperwork and in the way that we spoke to the chorus specifically. So normally in opera, you know, you, you designate them by voice type. So you talk about, you know, the, the sopranos or the tenors, then a lot of times their costumes are based on their voice type as well. So in Faust in particular, all the sopranos were maidens and all of the mezzos were matrons and, you know, all of the, that's just the way that, that oh, traditionally it's done. But because we did have somebody who was transitioning and somebody, you know, uh, was singing in a specific voice type, but was costume in a, in a different costume. So what we started to do was refer to them in their costume pieces. So we'd be like all the matrons on stage right or all of the, um, the soldiers on stage left just to kind of distinguish where it needed to be. And similarly, we did it with voice type for dressing rooms as well. But that was a conversation that we had with the particular people that it included or that in that it kind of involved. And we asked them on the side, you know, where do you want to have your dressing room or who do you want to dress with? What are you most comfortable with? Where do you want to be? You know, and it was just a discussion. And I found that in every situation, everybody was very open about talking about it and, and they felt much more comfortable to talk about it and to be included in that discussion and to like help us figure out how to best word it or like how do they want it listed in the program or how do they want it listed on the dressing room so it was it was a big learning curve for us because we had to switch over all of our paperwork but it was really well I think that's fantastic that you were open to having that conversation with uh the folks who were um in between or want needing some more support or, or mm-hmm. wherever they fell in the gender identity spectrum and how they fit within the show. Um, so I think that's huge progress. Yeah. Um, that is fantastic. And I congratulate you and those companies for, um, for doing that, particularly if, uh, the folks who were uh, most affected by it were appreciative of it and um, had a positive experience. And I think you hit on something um, that is really important, that it, it comes down to the people and the conversations that you have with them, um, that there's, it's kind of hard to codify absolutely everything. I think every sh- just like every show is different, you know, and your mix of people in the room, it's what worked in one on one show and one set of paperwork might not work with the next show and the next set of paperwork. So if you're, yeah, if you're open to being able to be nimble uh, and responsive enough to, to change that up from show to show, um, that's fantastic. Instead of putting the people in the boxes, letting the box, letting the people figure out where they need to be. And then your response to that. So that's yeah. great. A picture of not boxes, but like hexagrams or something. <laughs> it was same with dressing room signs, you know, just figuring out dressing room situations and, and how that was going to work and how we were going to label them. And, you know, it was, it was really, it was actually kind of exciting and, and interesting. And 
I believe in every situation. I know in at least two of the situations, they were, they were very grateful and came up to me afterwards, you know, and thanked me for it and for including them in it and not just like me deciding where they wanted to be and putting them there. Uh, so that was really nice. But another thing I noticed with companies, and I haven't actually done this to myself yet, but a lot of companies have started, not even companies, companies and individuals have started putting pronouns at the in their signatures on emails. Yep, we just um, all added that at East West Players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know you guys brought it up. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and how that, what that means to you and how you think that helps? Because I know what it means to me, but just so that our listeners know. Sure. Um, well, gender, uh, misgendering somebody uh, is never a good thing to do. Um, particularly (laughs) if they've told you what their gender is and, um, you get it wrong (laughs) or there it's consistently a person is misgendered. And so then, uh, that's just not a good situation for, for anyone. Um, but that being said, um, one thing I would say, particularly on this topic, um, in our email signatures at East West Players, as Stacy just said, we have our pronouns listed. And we actually list them as pronouns, not gender pronouns. Um, uh, that seems to, because we all have pronouns and we all have gender. Um, and saying my gender pronouns is a little bit redundant. And, um, and also saying if you say preferred, that means like, oh, you, it's optional if you use it or not. So just by, you just say my pronouns are, and in our email, mine just says pronouns, colon, she, her, hers. Um, and, uh, Snehal has gone, uh, a bit, a step further and I still need to copy his idea. Yeah, I was just um, saying, I used whatever, I copied his. Yeah, his is a, a, he includes a link next to his pronouns, uh, that, is uh it says what's this and you click on that link and it goes to the university of wisconsin at uh milwaukee um to their lgbt uh center and they have uh basically a frequently asked questions about gender pronouns really nicely broken down in terms of like what is a pronoun why is it important to respect people's pronouns um how do I ask someone what pronouns they use? And what if I make a mistake? Um, it's, it's a really nice um, FAQ. Uh, so I highly encourage anybody who's interested in, in learning more about that. Um, even just a cursory Google search uh, will bring you to articles about why gender uh, or not misgendering people is uh, important. So for myself, uh, it's, again, part of the uh, journey of trying to be a better ally. Uh, it's a, that's how what I view it as, is a step um, along that journey. Um, I will make mistakes, of course, like mm-hmm. everybody will. But the, the way I look at it is it's how do you recover from those mistakes? Uh, can you recover from those mistakes with grace and do better? Um, mm-hmm. then you're continuing down the path of being a, an ally. Um, and also just I, be, even if you're just aware that you said something that you know might not be 100% appropriate, then you're aware of it for next time. 
Exactly. Exactly. Um, it's it's always a learning process. The one one thing that I will um, say is that uh, all of us who are learning about these things and wanting to do better is um, doing our own research and not with every question that you have. If you know somebody uh, who is transgendered, who is genderqueer, who um, is falls outside of the traditionally accepted binary uh gender binary um if you're i I know some non-binary people right right and everybody kind of has their their own way of referring to it like i'm non-gender binary or i am gender queer or gender exploring or uh not defined and so the more um, research you can do on your own instead of using those folks as your personal Google um, is is better because they do have the there is an emotional labor that does come into play. Um, and also, I'm sure people of color experience this um, uh, when they're constantly having to answer questions. So if you're mm-hmm. if you're interested in learning more about this i highly suggest your own google searches um uh (laughs) instead of constantly bombarding uh folks in this community uh for their for for answers to your questions because also like i since there's so many different genders and so many different ways that people uh go by these days everybody's answer is going to be different too so you need to navigate your own way through this and with a positive and open attitude. Yeah, that makes sense because if, like, if a gender non... If somebody said, why are you straight? Um, because I am? Like, I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> like, when people ask Cindy and I, like, what's it like being a twin? We're always like, well, what's it like not being a twin? Because <laughs> this is what I know, so I don't know what it is to be the other side. So yeah, that, I didn't think about it that way, but that I get the twin question whenever people find out we're twins. So yeah, interesting. That's good. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm going to tell them this, go, go Google it next time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go read about what it's like to be a twin and tell me what you think. Um, uh, but yeah, I have the, uh, the web address that we'll put in the, uh, on our website and on Facebook and uh, Instagram so if people want to follow it up that way yeah it's a very good article I unfortunately didn't read the whole thing I skimmed it but I read some of it <laughs> <laughs> we talked about it for a couple hours during the staff meeting so I think I, I you I have absorbed some information yeah yes. it was a lot of stuff I just never thought about before uh, so it's just interesting to me because I just haven't really come across across it too much so it's uh, definitely a new thing to me and trying to figure out you know the whole dude and guy and <laughs> not upsetting people or because i'm not trying to i just nature right well you know and we were talking a little bit also earlier about like addressing an audience or addressing people in the customer service uh mm-hmm. realm and for an audience like again you know, we've thrown out different suggestions to Snehal. He's come up with a couple of other things, you know, um, instead of, you know, when you've got somebody doing a live curtain speech or a recorded mm-hmm. curtain speech, instead of saying, ladies and gentlemen, you know, there's so many different things that you can say that includes everybody um, that make, 
you know, it's depending on what are the values of your company or your the show that's going on. Um, I like friends and new friends. Um, nice. You know, uh, audience members. Uh, that's a little formal. But, you know, I think that it's kind of up to whoever is doing the recording or writing the recording or uh, doing the um, live announcement for them to find their own personality within that. And how what is the tone that they want to set, um, you know, for... Um, welcoming people into their space. Um, I don't think there's, again, a way to codify, you know, everything. And like, instead of ladies and gentlemen, it should be this. I think it opens up a lot of more opportunities for companies to express themselves or artistic directors, uh, you know, to express themselves and how they want to, you know, welcome their audience in their space. Unfortunately, I've been struggling with, um, in a customer service transactional relationship, when you might not know somebody's uh, name, um, how to get their attention across a lobby, you know, um, and sir or ma'am, it's more of the, that uh, language that I have not yet found a very good um, alternative for. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, because you can't tell by just looking at someone. So when, well, we had uh, our first rehearsal the other night for uh, Man of God, and uh, we forgot, Meredith remembered uh, with Patricia. Yeah, it was to, Patricia. <laughs> <laughs> to introduce themselves and then say their pronouns, but we were halfway through the group before uh, that was remembered and brought up. And one of the, one of them said, one of the actors said, she and they, but like, I wouldn't know that unless they told me. So how do you ask like you can't just go up to everybody and be like hey what do you want to be known as is like how do you start that conversation with somebody you're selling a ticket to or is an actor on stage or is a new crew member you just hired well i think that one east west player is putting it in um our emails like if you're having email mm -hmm. transactions or you know conversations with folks you have it right there in front of you so mm -hmm. you misgendering somebody in an email when it says it right in their you know email signature is um you know somebody who's just not paying attention um you know in a you know when you're starting a new process like we did last night with the first rehearsal of for a man of god um, that's an opportune time for people to be able to say it. If you're going around the room and you're saying something about yourself, such as like what role your, you know, your first name, uh, what role you're playing or what technical or design, uh, role you are, are doing or what your, uh, position is at the company and then what your pronouns are, um, is a way. Now, sometimes I feel like when I'm in these big groups and doing this, I've been to an a lot of theater conferences for a while where they've been <laughs> doing uh, this type of introduction. And when you're in a big group, I'm not even going to remember, right? Yeah. Like, cause it's hard. It's really hard. And so sometimes on like name badges uh, at conferences and stuff, we've, we have our pronouns. There's a somewhere in the registration process you put they've asked what are your pronouns and they will put it under your name oh, I so that, that you That's have cool. it in front of you <laughs> you know you're wearing your name badge at the conference or whatever you have 
you it's awkward, but you know, you can look to make sure you're using the correct pronouns with each person. And if you forget, I think the words I'm sorry are is go a long way. Uh, mm-hmm. And just apologizing and saying, I'm so sorry, I've made the mistake or I'm so sorry, I forgot um, what you said, if you're unsure, if you don't remember, mm-hmm. um, and then just cementing it in your mind with that person. Um, for one-on-one introductions and new folks, I think it's it's up to you how you want to do it. I think by example is uh, always good. Um, I don't, I haven't quite worked into, hi, my name's Meredith, nice to meet you. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, yeah, that it's, sounds a little <laughs> long in. Yeah, yeah. It's I haven't quite figured that out, uh, you know, in a social context. Um but in the in the transactional and customer service, um, patron services, audience services realm, it really is you either have the person's name in front of you with their ticket order or or what have you. But if but a lot of times when you're in the house, you're trying to get somebody's attention and you don't have their ticket in front of you. Mm-hmm. So like when you're in box office, it's a little easier because you have names in front of you and you can at least have a name to call somebody whereas you're in in the front of house and you're trying to get somebody's attention in the middle of a row because you know there's a ticketing issue or they left their credit card at concessions or you know you're trying to talk to somebody get somebody's attention who you whose name you don't know and that's where i still struggle again you know with the sir or ma'am um because hey you isn't all that um nice (laughs) it's not as formal as you want it to be yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) is there something like mr and mrs and of course the females have like ms mrs miss is is there a more generic non-gender well in terms that way in terms of a uh a salutation uh in that way Gosh, that's a whole other thing because not only is that gendered, but it's women's are dependent on their marital status. Exactly. And that bothers me on so many other levels as well. I personally try not to use the Mr. or Mrs. in anything um, that I do. I know probably our development department is a little more formal when dealing with donors and stuff and using formal, um, you know, uh, it names in letters and and invitations and such but with me i try not to put any of that in there at all unless somebody's designated a like doctor or judge for you know the 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 honorable as a judge uh if it's if it's a professional um designation instead of a gendered or marital status <laughs> gendered yeah. uh, um, prefix. I'm now totally searching for the name of what what is that article called? The Mister, Mrs., whatever. Um, but I mean, I try not to use to use that to begin with. Um, we have any Swiss players. We I try to cultivate a a little more relaxed. Um, not necessarily informal and not necessarily casual, but just a little more relaxed tone um, to my communications with our patrons um, and particularly our subscribers. They need the information and that's all going to be, you know, that that will all be there. But um, in terms of uh, how I address them, I tend to use first names. Um, we're like 
the philosophy being come to my home east west players and see a show yeah come we're not to a our huge home. house we're not you know the the dorothy chandler we don't fit a what a thousand people in the audience <laughs> and we're not dressed up in suits and all all the time mm-hmm. and normally i just use first name on talking to vendors unless they introduce themselves as mr or mrs most people just say hi i'm mike i'm like hi i'm stacy yeah <laughs> i mean i know we have a couple of, of old school folks uh you know who who prefer that and and if i notice that in their communications with me i will continue to use that with them but um i try to drop all of the mr and mrs and formal yeah. stuff i always thought it was weird even as a kid that mr is just mr and females have so many different levels that even now when i fill out a form i just put miss ms i'm mm-hmm. married but it doesn't matter to you yeah exactly i i've been using that even before i got married because i was like who cares that's yeah. that's none of your concern that should not affect anything yeah i know like our grandma her checks and all still said uh mrs connie dale hinnon or mrs dale hinnon dale hinnon yeah. Wow. Okay. Even with the husband's first name. Yep. Yeah. Mrs. Husband's name. Yep. And I was like, get your own checks. Like, <laughs> he doesn't know how to write a check. Why do you have his name on it? But yeah, she did up until she passed away. It was all under his name. Uh, so we're we're at time. Uh, it's always uh, one hour never seems long enough. <laughs> so much stuff to talk about. Uh, but we did warn you about the last question because I'm always forgetting to warn people or twin is one of us. Uh, but you actually said you knew answers to this one. You got any good twin stories? <laughs> well, I two friends growing up. Uh, just a little shout out to Christine and Michelle. Um, uh, they were good friends growing up uh, in elementary, middle school and high school. Um and we're still friends on Facebook and sometimes see each other uh, when I go back to Chicago. Um, so they were, they were just, they were the twins. They yep, were the known twins. as the twins. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they identical? Fraternal? Uh, fraternal. Do they look alike a lot? Or? They do, um, but they uh, are very different personalities and, and uh, different hair and but they, they, you look at them and you know they're twins um, of some sort. <laughs> then, then there was another set of twins that grew up on my street, the boys who were older, identical twins. And they had a lawn mowing business. <laughs> and we all knew um, them, uh, Billy and Jeff. And uh, the, the funny story is, is my friend uh, Colleen Lived in a different section of town, but her mother had hired them because, like I said, they pretty much a lot of people use them in my hometown uh, for their for lawn mowing. And uh, Colleen didn't know that her mom had hired a set of twins to cut their grass. And she has a story of like being in the front room and seeing a person mowing the grass and then walking in across the uh, across the house and going to a window in the back of the house. And seeing the same person cutting the grass at the same time and freaking out because she had no idea that it was twins that were cutting her grass at that, at that moment. Exactly, because it's not like we tell people. I know that, uh, I don't know why Nora here at East West took forever to figure out I'm a twin. Huh. And like she didn't know for the first couple months. Huh. 
And then I was, we were recording a podcast and I was downstairs and Cindy's video was up and I was talking to her and Nora came in. She's like, why are you editing a video of yourself? Like, this is not me. That's twin. You're a twin? I'm like, Nora, how long have you been here? Like, <laughs> my Facebook says well, Twin Stock Theater. No, for like two years. And he was, and I was like, I talk about it all the time. And he was like, well, I knew you had a sister, but I didn't know you were twins. <laughs> we refer to each other as twin. How do you not figure that out? <laughs> yeah, it, Cindy, it took me a long time to un- to know what your name was because uh, twin. she just calls you twin. Stacy's <laughs> yeah. last job was the same thing. They're like, what's, what's her name? Who's yeah, twin? I was there for nine years and they just knew twin. But, yeah. yeah, so I don't know how people don't figure it out, but uh, some people don't. <laughs> Guys, we never tried the lawn mowing thing. We just did like switching places in school. Oh, did you? Only occasionally when the twin was sick. Ha! Huh. Then I would go. Did to you get away with it? Yeah. Yeah, we always <laughs> did. We, uh, because she was sick a lot senior year, and so one she was back and forth in and out of school, and and I forget why, but I went to some of my classes because we had all well, the classes you, together. We or, were doing it. We were doing a show and you were tired. And so I said, well, I'll just go to school in your place today and no one will question it. Cause I'm out. Cindy's all out all the time sick anyways. <laughs> in order to do theater, you had to attend like, you know, five out of seven of your classes. Otherwise you couldn't do extra school activities. And so in order for Stacy to make it to the, ex- to the theater, the afterwards, theater. she had to attend class. So I attended classes for her. So that she but you attended some of your own classes because you had German and I had Spanish. So I missed Spanish that day, but attended the other classes. You went to German, but like our math teacher knew because she was smart. The, the <laughs> government guy had no idea what was going on, um, but everyone just thought it was entertaining. The people who knew and everyone else just was kind of awkward about it because they didn't know what was happening or just had no idea, but it worked. Never got. I mean, we told our parents. They knew. They were like, whatever. Yeah, my thought was funny. <laughs> yeah. Still got the homework done and all. So it's all good. <laughs> Do you play pranks on people? No, we didn't. I really wanted that. to. Yeah, I know. Party pooper. <laughs> but it's like, well, I didn't ever want to be with any of her boyfriends. So that wasn't going to do anything. I said that we should do something for my bro- our brother's wedding coming up in March. Oh. Uh, dress alike, but pretend we don't know each other. See what the other family says. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see about that. We don't have dresses yet. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how we would spend a whole day without talking to each other, though. Yeah, especially since we're supposed to be co-wedding uh, planners that day. Oh. Yeah. Responsibility. Yeah. I'm the officiant, too. So I said she had to have a job. <laughs> gave me a job she has to have one too but yeah well excellent congratulations brother upcoming <laughs> num- nuptials we'll see how it goes <laughs> yeah, actually sam just texted me uh during the podcast and said we're planning the bridal shower <laughs> okay i'll get back to you in that one <laughs> uh well excellent thanks for being on the podcast thank you so much for having me hopefully i didn't sound too much like a dope <laughs> we said we, originally Cindy originally thought she'd sound like an idiot. <sighs> okay, I'll go. Stop. You can go. <laughs> At least once a podcast this happens. So, uh, Cindy thought she would sound stupid and didn't want to do a podcast, and it took me a while to convince her, and now we're like on 60-something podcasts, so. Nice. Okay, what were you going to say? I mean, I still think I sound stupid half the time, but, you know, yeah. I just continue to do the podcast. <laughs> yep. 
keeps you busy. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was fun to talk about, you know. Yeah. It's always interesting because, like you said, you went in to be an actor and now you run box office and patron services. (laughs) (laughs) Not much acting. And a lot of different points in between A and B. (laughs) (laughs) And who knows where it'll go after this. Exactly. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstocktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at Twinstock Theater. Title music, Dance Macop, is provided by Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.